I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. <clears throat> Swift-footed Lord Achilles scowled and said, Incredible! You dress in shame. You are obsessed with getting profits for yourself. And which of the Greeks would willingly agree to make a trip because you told them to or fight against the enemy for you? I did not come to Troy because I wanted to fight against the warriors of Troy. They never did me any harm at all. They never raided cows from me, nor horses, nor blighted fertile fields that feed the men of Phthia far away across so many shadowy hills, reverberating seas. I came with you, you brazen cheat, to please you, to claim back compensation from the Trojans for Menelaus and for you, you dog face. But none of that means anything to you. You do not even care. And now you threaten to take away the trophy that I worked for, which the sons of Greece gave to me. You always get a better one than mine when we sack any wealthy Trojan town. My hands work hardest in the frenzied fighting, but when we share the spoils, you get much more. I come back to the ships worn out from battle with something valuable to me, but small. So... I will go back home to Phthia now, in my curved ships, because that is much better. I will not stay here to be disrespected, serving up wealth and revenue for you. And Agamemnon, lord of men, replied, then off you go, if that is what you want. I certainly will not be begging you to stay at Troy for me. You see, I have plenty of other helpers at my side ready to treat me with respect and honor, including Zeus, the god of strategy. I hate you more than any other leader, any of those whom Zeus protects and loves. You always relish war and fights and conflict. You may be strong, but some god gave you that. Go home, take all your ships and your companions and rule your myrmidons. I do not care. To me, you are entirely unimportant. Your anger does not bother me at all. But this I swear to you, just as Apollo will take Chryseis back away from me when I send her to him on my own ship, escorted by my very own companions, so shall I take your beautiful Briseis, your trophy. I myself will come and get her in person from your tent. So you will see how far superior I am to you, and other men will shrink from talking back to me, as if we were on equal terms. At this, Achilles, son of Peleus, was deeply troubled, and his inmost heart inside his hairy chest was split in two, as he considered whether he should draw the sharp sword that was hanging by his thigh and rouse the men and slaughter Agamemnon. Or 
curb his anger and restrain his impulse. And as he pondered in his mind, he started to draw the mighty blade out from its sheath. But then Athena swooped down from the sky. She had been sent forth by the white-armed goddess Hera, who loved both men. Athena stood behind Achilles, son of Peleus, and grabbed him by his chestnut hair. She was invisible to everyone but him. Achilles, startled, turned and recognized Athena. She had bright, unearthly eyes. His words flew out. Why have you come here, daughter of Zeus, the god who holds the royal aegis? Was it to see the cruel violence of Agamemnon, son of Atreus? I tell you, this will surely come to pass soon. He will die for all his arrogance. Grey-eyed Athena said, I came from heaven to hold your fury back, if you will listen. The white-armed goddess Hera sent me here because she loves and cares for both of you. Now stop this quarrel. Do not draw your sword. Taunt him with words and tell him what will happen. I promise you that this will be fulfilled. You will receive three times as many gifts one day because you suffered this affront. Listen to me. Hold back. And in reply, swift-footed Lord Achilles said to her, Goddess, when you two speak, a man must listen, however furious his heart may feel. It is the better choice. The gods take heed of those who show obedience to them. Grasping the silver hilt with his strong hand, he pushed the big sword back into its scabbard. He did not disobey Athena's words. And she rejoined the gods on Mount Olympus inside the house of Aegeus bearing Zeus. Achilles, son of Peleus, again berated Agamemnon with harsh words. His anger was not over yet. He said, you dog face. <laughs> you drunk and heavy with your wine. You have the heart and courage of a deer. You would never dare to put your armor on and march to battle with the common troops or join the finest fighters on a raid. That seems like death to you. Now, you much prefer to saunter through the mighty Greek encampment and steal from any man who speaks against you. Cannibal king, you eat your people up. You are a leader of non-entities. Otherwise, Agamemnon, this would be the very last time you abuse someone. And I shall swear to you a mighty oath. By this staff here, which will not grow more leaves or branches, it was cut upon the mountain and left its stump behind, and it will never sprout with fresh shoots because the bronze has stripped its leaves and bark. And now the sons of Greece pick up this staff and hold it in their hands when they are passing judgments to protect the customs and the laws that come from Zeus. By this, I swear to you a mighty oath, the Greeks will be We'll all be longing for Achilles one day, and you will have no power to help, and you will grieve, and many men will die at Hector's murderous hands, and then you will tear your heart inside you in a bitter rage because you failed to pay the best Greek fighter proper respect. Good evening, everyone, and a very warm welcome to Conway Hall for this London Review Bookshop special event to celebrate the publication of Emily Wilson's landmark translation of Homer's Iliad. 
Emily Wilson is Professor of Classical Studies at the University of Pennsylvania and a regular contributor to the London Review of Books, whose previous translations from Greek and Latin include tragedies by Sophocles, Euripides and Seneca, and of course, Homer's Odyssey. I'm Thomas Jones, Emily's editor at the LRB, and her interlocutor in the LRB's Close Readings podcast series, Among the Ancients, of which I'm pleased to say we're about to start recording a second series for next year. Um, to listen to the first series, which includes some of the earliest airings of parts of Emily's Iliad translation, search for Close Readings wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, but to talk to Emily this evening, I'm delighted to hand over to Edith Hall, Professor of Classics at Durham University and the author of many acclaimed books on ancient Greek culture and its influence on modernity, including The Return of Ulysses and A People's History of Classics. And she has a book on the Iliad and the environment out next year, which will be called Achilles in Green. <laughs> but for centuries before the poems of Homer as they've come down to us today were written down, they were told and retold by oral poets or rhapsodes and there's a sense in which that living tradition of retelling a story is continued today by translators. Tell the old story, as Emily puts it in her translation of the Odyssey, for modern times. But the oral tradition also means that these are very much poems to be read aloud. And we're immensely lucky to have with us this evening the remarkable Juliet Stevenson, star of films like Truly Madly Deeply and Bend It Like Beckham, who earlier this year reprised her role in Robert Icke's play The Doctor in New York, to great acclaim. And Tobias Menzies, whose work on some of the most notable series of recent times, from Rome to Game of Thrones, Outlander to The Crown, has made him one of our most in-demand and celebrated actors. And as we've already heard, they will be reading from Emily's translation of the Iliad throughout the evening, bringing it even more vividly to life. So the conversation readings between them will last about an hour, which should leave around 20 minutes at the end for you to put your questions to Emily and to Edith. <laughs> Signed copies are for sale in the foyer. Um, so without further ado, please put your hands together for Edith Hall and Emily Wilson. Thank you so very much for a very warm introduction. And thank you so much to the actors to be plunged <laughs> into a Bronze Age row <laughs> between somebody who thinks their power rests on inherited rights as a hereditary monarch back hundreds of generations, the scepter from Zeus, and somebody who's just incredibly good at their job. <laughs> right. That, to me, and I risk accusations of Eurocentrism, I defy anyone to find anything like that in early Chinese, Indian, or Mesopotamian literature. It is riveting. We start with a row. So this poem, Emily and I share a lot in that we're both funny little English girls <laughs> who managed to get some ancient Greek despite um, an entire history of patriarchal exclusion of women from <laughs> classics. And we both fell madly in love with the Iliad. For this first 20 minutes, I'd like to talk about you. Mm -hmm. I'd like to talk about what your Iliad is, how you were drawn to it. Mm -hmm. So tell us something about your, you know, on first looking into <laughs> Homer's Homer for you. Yes, so I mean, on first looking into Wilson's Homer, I think part of it is that I have, I mean, I have a sort of many types, types of doubleness. Um, I am 
a very introverted person who loves the theater and high drama and shouting and rows I'm on the inside. That's part of what draws me to very intense emotional texts like the Iliad, but also to dead languages where all the intense emotions and the fascination with language and literature didn't require me in, as a shy teenager to speak. Um, also, the fact that I've... Um, I've studied both classics and I also did a degree in English, that I'm very much immersed in the Anglophone metrical poetic tradition as well as in... Um, I love Milton as well as the Homeric epics. And I think, even though I don't want to make Homer sound sub-Miltonic, sub the fact that I wanted to, um, to, to use regular meter, which does set the translations apart from most of yep. the best-selling, um, usually by American men, translations of, of Homer from 20th and 21st century. And of, and of course, in Britain, the prose translations, which to me make no sense. Why read Homer in prose? It doesn't make any sense. And then I guess the other thing, just that I've been both, I grew up, in the UK, as you can tell, we're shy British girls, um, but I also, I've also spent the last um, 25 years, something that feels unreal amount of time in the, in the US. So I've been exposed to both systems. I've taught American undergraduates and taught them homo in translation with all these non-metrical translations and also, of course, taught Greek and Latin to students on both sides of the Atlantic, but more in America. So I feel I have a sort of sense of how is Homer received in both translation and the sort of cultures of academia, the cultures of pedagogy, and the cultures also of people who aren't classicists, what do they think about Homer? It's a bit different in both countries, and I think it actually mattered for these projects that I was coming sort of from two different heritages. I, th yeah. I think it really shows, and it, it enriches it very mm. considerably. I have to say, you get so much for your money. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you haven't bought one yet, I have never seen a translation of the Iliad um, because Emily is a very experienced teacher, so uh, oriented towards the needs of everybody from the beginner to someone like me who actually does know almost as much as Emily <laughs> you know, you know about Homer. Um, I still am learning from it. You know, the maps, the genealogies, the 100 pages of notes, um, the, the, the bibliographies, the, you know, it, it's an extraordinary thing. This does, however, mean... I think that she meant this deliberately. So there's a thing in the Iliad about what really, really big warriors like Ajax, okay, who's basically the centre back of the Achaean team, <laughs> right? Right. He's Harry. What's his name? Harry Kane, right? He is <laughs> of yeah. years, right? And so there's a stone that nobody today. <laughs> could possibly lift up, that he lifts up to bash people's head in. And she gives you the prop. So when you're reading that bit, you lift <laughs> this thing up. And you, right. Bash it, yes. Exactly. Yes. And yes. I know you thought about that. So this is in, in, incredibly helpful, and I'm finding it really useful, um, especially the maps, I have to say. But I still, I'm going to push you one step further. Yes. I want a vision of teenage Emily Wilson at a desk or in her bed or in a classroom, first crying. <laughs> because what all your reviewers have said is the emotional clout of this. Mm -hmm. So give me the scene where you're first weeping over Homer. At what age and which scene? That's a great question. Um, I mean, I, I have a much clearer memory of first learning Latin in high school when I was 
14 and weeping over the over Aeneid book 2. And right. of course, that in a way sets you up to yes. be ready to sob over the Iliad because we're always preparing for the death of Priam, the wooden horse, the sack of the city, the grief of this fallen city. So I remember very vividly being 14 and sort of realizing, you know, in French class, I'm learning how to find the way to the bus stop. And in Latin class, I'm weeping over the fall of a, of a devastated city. Um, and, I, and then I started learning Greek and... I mean, I think maybe, I mean, I, I remember as a teenager, I was very, very much moved by the gods and very much moved by the, the ways... Gods. The gods. Really? Uh, yes, I was. I, I was obsessed with the gods. I mean, from a very young age, I was obsessed with the, the Homeric gods and the truthfulness of how cruel they are and, how, and also of the magicalness of how they move through the world. I mean, as a translator, I found it fascinating to try and make sure that they feel fully real and yet they, and their feelings are like human feelings, but their movements are not like human feelings. And the way Thetis emerges from the sea and you think it's mist, but no, it's actually going to speak and it's a goddess and she has maternal feelings. And the fact that nature is alive and divine has always moved me. And I remember sort of going for a walk in the woods with an early boyfriend and sort of talking about, this, this is all, about, all like the Homeric gods and all these trees. Be cut. I mean, we've talked before about the trees that are cut down to make the, the black ships. Yeah. That element of both the divine and the natural in the Homeric poems spoke to me from a very, very early age. And I think it actually took me longer to realize just how great a character Andromache is. Um, which I know, I know, I got it in the end. I did, didn't. It doesn't escape me what a great character she is. But the the, the fine element was what fascinating. What a fascinating me. Yeah. answer, because yeah. in general, and we will go on to this, yes. um, that the received opinion is that the gods who are immortal, so cannot die, are there to provide some sort of light comic mm -hmm. relief to the true tragedy mm -hmm. of the the mortal humans. Mm -hmm. So it's actually the gods that 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 let you in that numinous. Um, the, the numinous, and also you can see the human tragedy from the cruelty of the gods. Oh. I mean, that's all implicit. If you read the terrible argument of Zeus and Hera over, you want to devastate this city, I want to devastate these three cities, so let's yeah. do a deal and we'll devastate all of them. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's just how it is. And then it's so chilling, it's almost funny, and that makes it even more chilling. Yes. Yes. So this may sound like a slightly peculiar question, but what does, you know... There are 16,000-plus dactylic hexameters in this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Why did you decide to translate it? How long have you wanted to translate it? Did Norton come to you with a deal you couldn't say no to? <laughs> <laughs> or was this little 15-year-old thinking, I can do better than Pope? I certainly didn't think that at 15. I mean, I, I, I still don't think I can do better than Pope. I mean, Pope is great, um, but there isn't very much Homer in Pope, but Pope is wonderful. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think everyone should read Pope as well as Homer. Um, I, I mean, at 15, I knew I wanted to spend my whole life reading this stuff, but that didn't necessarily mean I wanted to translate it. I mean, I knew I wanted to go on reading it forever. Um, but it was only... My first translation, somebody, was, somebody approached me... Um, who'd read my first book, which had some little quotations from Seneca in it, and said, we're looking for a new translation of Seneca, would you consider doing this? And so I did those Seneca translations and realized this is really fun. Right. And some of my interests in the, recep the long reception of classical literature, which is one of the interests that we sort of very much share, um, I sort of realized I could actually be part of this tradition as well as studying it. And the fact that I want to study it may actually help me figure out how to be part of it as well and how to figure out the next stages in um, 
how my classical literature be received and also be received by the, the readers of my translations. Okay, yeah. but, but you've bucked the I haven't, I haven't got to help me yet. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. <laughs> <laughs> but so then I got involved with the Norton Anthology of World Literature, and they were looking for a new Homer. They were. Um, they were. And so they, they at first had sort of thought maybe we'll ask someone sort of famous, and of course I wasn't famous, um, but then I was already in-house because I was an editor and I knew the Norton people, and so they asked me to, to consider it. And at first I thought, mm, I'm not sure if the world needs a new Homer, you know, because there are quite a lot of Homers already out there. <laughs> and so and then, then I sort of did a lot of reflection on my experiences in the classroom, and I did a sort of close reading of something like 12 different translations of you know, a single book next to the Greek and thought, what's being left out? What kinds of things might I do differently? And I, I did a sample passage. And after doing that, I thought, I really want to do this. And then I signed the contract. And yeah, here I am, right. 12 years so later. So did you yes. sign for both the Odyssey and the Iliad at the same I time? I signed with an option for the Iliad. And I hesitated after the Odyssey because I had thought maybe I needed a decade off in between. Um, because it's kind, of, it's kind of a lot. But, and then I thought, maybe I'm on a roll and I should just keep going because I've got the hang of it. And the yeah. best training for doing a translation of an epic is doing a translation of an epic. And I do, do still think that. Um, but and then once I started with the Iliad, I, I got stuck. And it was... Well, you said yes, that. And yeah. One of the... I think, of course, I love the translation. I've reviewed it in, dare I mention, another publication, The Guardian. <laughs> and I think it's wonderful. Um, and the translation is magical. But there is this thing rather, to me, weirdly called uh, Translator's Note, which is 24 pages <laughs> I could easily have written of 50, about 400 yes. words each. I mean, since when was that a note? I mean, excuse me, this is a long extended translator's essay, but it's unbelievably precious. This, to me, there is no other translation of the Iliad that has done this. I mean, you get Matthew Arnold, who doesn't actually translate it, pontificating mm. like mad, but you don't have somebody who's actually done it try to explain their whole experience, let alone admit that they were stalled for two years, mm -hmm. which is, I think is, 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 is a beautiful touch. So how could that be after you really found this effervescent, confident voice <laughs> with the Odyssey? Mm -hmm. What happened when you sat down with men in Iadis there, <laughs> you know, the first line of the Iliad? Did you just, you know, take us through those blank two years? Well, effervescent um, is Sorry, a quality. That's my word. No, I like that word for the Odyssey, and I think it actually gets to part of why I was stuck because the Odyssey. I did want to make it sound at least somewhat effervescent quite a lot of the time. The Iliad should not sound effervescent. No. The poem is not like that. It's very claustrophobic. It's very dark. You should feel very much confined, both in these, confined in the besieged city of Troy, confined in the Greek encampment, confined on the battlefield in these sort of very close encounters of men, men's bodies close together, and then the mortal. Body Body, this, this tiny space of all with all these points where bronze will get through and kill you. And you should just feel that so intensely, and the sounds should be so intense. The brightnesses of the glittering bronze armor should be so, so intense. Everything should be sort of amped up to 11 all the time. That's not effervescent. And so even though, in a sense, it's the, it's the same, comes from the same poetic world, it shouldn't quite feel the same. And then also, just technically, I very much value pacing as a quality of Homeric poetics. And I felt, in, in my whole review uh, 12 years ago, thinking through 
what have these translations got wrong that I might try to correct for, one of the things I thought about was most translations of Homer are too long. They add in too many words, they make it seem boring, and the, the original is nothing, is, is anything but boring. It's constantly you're wanting to hear more. And so with the Odyssey, I thought I'm going to force myself not to be boring by matching the line count of the original. Um, and with the Iliad, after many months of thinking, maybe I, maybe I can make this work with the Iliad too, I realized I can't. It's impossible. The math doesn't work because there are too many names in the Iliad. Um, so you can't shorten the names. I can't call him Ag, son of eight. He, that actually does take up the whole line. If I want to say Agamemnon, son of Atreus, that takes up a whole line. Unless, and then I experimented with, can I use a longer line? And I spent about six months trying to use a longer line, not going to give up on pentameter. And I tried and tried and tried, and some of the lines, as individual lines, were okay, but as passages, they were no good. It just didn't have the um, propulsive forward motion, which the original in hexameter, which feels natural for archaic Greek, it has this tell me more, tell me more, tell me more quality, which my English hexameters never did. Mm -hmm. So after that, I sort of thought, okay, I, I mean, that took me many, many, this is partly why I'm sort of explaining why did it take me so long to be stuck, because I was doing all this sort of technical yeah. wrestling with form. And I get, got back to pentameter and realized I'm just going to have to let myself have more lines. And yeah. I actually think it had a really good effect. Yeah. It, it made me able to use much more long words. And I love long words, and you know, Homer loves long words too. So it was, it was good, yeah. I, I, I completely agree, and for the English era, you know, iambic pentameter <laughs> yeah. is the one. This is our 700-year-old medium yeah. of natural poetic verse, yeah. uh, which is exactly what narrative poetry, the dactylic hexameter, was for the Greeks. I, yeah. I, I could not agree with you more. But I'm interested, and, and I don't want to hit the gender thing too hard, though I will just say <laughs> that this, right now, what you're seeing would have been Im unimaginable when I was a PhD student in the 1980s. The Iliad, William Golden said, anybody who prefers the Odyssey to the Iliad has a woman's heart. Mm -hmm. Women yeah. were not <laughs> allowed near the Iliad. All right? Mm -hmm. Women weren't allowed near Thucydides. Classics was divided into girly authors and texts. Mm -hmm. Right? Love poetry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of tragedy, but not Aeschylus. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and Xenophon, you can, you can do a bit of Xenophon history. But then there was all these very rigid, manly texts like Thucydides and mm -hmm. the Iliad. Yep. The idea that you'd be watching a female professor interviewing a female translator on the Iliad in the heart of London. I'm sorry, can, we ju can I just put it out there? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> High five. <laughs> How, how far have we come? Seriously, it makes me cry, really. But the weight of, the monumental weight of not only the history of translation of the Iliad, forget Pope for a minute, who'd run through 80 million editions by, you know, 1800 mm -hmm. or yeah. something. Forget the 50 translations in the 19th century, the 30 in the 20th mm -hmm. century, the 12 already. How did you steel yourself up to it? How did you feel, I mean, you absolutely do have something new to give, but you know, how do you deal psychologically? I speak as someone who's just edited the Agamemnon. Mm -hmm. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it's hard. I mean, 
I felt that I just have to not look at the others while I'm working with the Greek. And I, obviously, I have to use everything that I've taken on through teaching other translations, through teaching the Greek, through obviously reading books and articles about Homer, and including by women scholars. And it's, I think it's, it's also, we wouldn't be where we are without the shoulders of many female giants as well as male giants. Mm. Um, and there also, I should just do a shout out that I'm the second woman to publish a translation of the Iliad into English. Caroline Alexander also yes, published one. Yes, she did one, indeed. So we should, we should you know, make Absolutely. sure we're you know, paying I'm not proper heed to that. Yes. No, no. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I just felt that the main thing to do with all of those anxieties is just to focus on the work at hand. I mean, pick up the rock that's in front of okay. you. Okay. Yeah. In, the, in, the, in our next slot, I'm going to ask more about your actual method. And it's yeah. interesting to hear that you actually put the other translations away. Yeah when you were doing it. But one of the things that you say about what you think makes you a bit different is you start with the soundscape. Mm -hmm. You start with how it sounds. Mm -hmm. So I think what we need to do now is hear you read a little bit, even for people who have absolutely no ancient Greek, which is actually 99.9% of all of Britons today. <laughs> we would like to hear you reading a little bit of Greek before we go on to hear our wonderful actors perform the most um, heart-rending, I think, seen in the entire Iliad when Hector says goodbye to his wife and baby for the last time. Yes. None of us are going to cry. I know. <laughs> Possis de la essa no essas. Kirita min caterexine postafet ectonomazde. Daimonia. Mermoitileana kekis de othumo. Ugartis mupe aisan ana aidi prapse. Moiran dut in a femi perfugmon on emanayandron. Ukakon udem en estlon. A penta protagonetai. Alles oikone usa tasas sasautas erga komizda istonte lakatente kayamfe poloisi kaluwa kaluwa ergone poikestai polamostan dressi malasai pasi maliste de moi toi ilio engega asin husarafonesas korthileto faidemos hector hipuron. Alacoste filae oikonde bebecae, entropalis domine, thaloron catadacru keusa. That's a reading of the scene which you're about to hear in English, which is why Emily was tearing up. <laughs> Now Hector saw his child and smiled at him in silence, saying nothing. Andromache stood next to him in tears, grasping his hand, and spoke his name and said, What are you doing, Hector? You strange man. Your will to fight will kill you. Do you feel no pity for your little baby son or my unhappiness, my life of loss? 
Soon I shall be your widow. Soon the Greeks, all of them rushing at you all at once, will kill you. Then for me, when I have lost you, better that I sink down below the earth. There can be no more comfort afterwards for me when you are dead, but only pain. I have no father and no noble mother, because godlike Achilles killed my father. He breached the towering gates and sacked my city. Thebe, where we Sicilians once lived in peace. Achilles killed the king, my father, but did not strip the armor from his corpse. He felt compunction, so he burned the body along with his ornate, well-fashioned weapons and heaped a mound to mark the place. Around it, the Oreads, the mountain goddesses, children of Zeus who wear the goatskin aegis, made elm trees grow. And I had seven brothers. All of them went to Hades on one day. Swift-footed Lord Achilles killed them all amid their bright white sheep and shambling cattle. My mother, who had ruled so long as queen beneath the shady woodlands of Mount Placus, was brought here by Achilles as a slave, along with all the other looted treasure, but he accepted ransom from her father to set her free. And in her father's house, Artemis, with an arrow, struck and killed her. Hector, you are my father and my mother. You are my brother and the vigorous man whose bed I share. Please think of me. Please have pity and stay here on the wall. Please do not make your son an orphan and your wife a widow. Line up the troops beside the wild fig tree, the place the enemy might scale the wall and strike the town of Troy. The Greeks have come to try that very spot three times already. Brave Diomedes, son of Tydeus, both sons of Atreus, the two named Ajax and famous Idomeneus, attacked right there with all their finest fighters. Perhaps someone who knew divine intentions told them, or their own impulse led them there. Great Hector, in his flashing helmet, answered, Woman, I care about all these things too, but I feel overwhelming shame in front of the Trojan women in their trading dresses and Trojan men if I shrink back from war as if I were a coward. And my spirit tells me I must not stop, for I have learned always to be a warrior and fight among the frontline champions of Troy to win great glory for the king my father and for myself. You see, my heart and mind know this for sure. There will be a day when holy Troy will be destroyed and Priam, lord of the Ashwood Spear, and all our people. But no one matters more to me than you. No pain that anyone in Troy will suffer, not even Hecuba or High King Priam, not even all my many noble brothers who will be slaughtered by our enemies and fall amid the dust in days to come. No pain of theirs affects me more than yours. One day, some bronze-armed Greek will capture you, and you will weep, deprived of all your freedom. Then you will weave to serve another woman in Argos, you will have to carry water from River Hyperia or Messias entirely against your will, but forced by strong necessity. And sometimes people will see you weeping there and they will say, that woman 
used to be the wife of Hector, who was the greatest champion of Troy during the Trojan War. And when they say that, your pain and grief will feel brand new again because you do not have a man like me to save you from the day of your enslavement. But as for me, I hope I will be dead and lying underneath a pile of earth so that I do not have to hear your screams nor watch when they are dragging you away. Then noble Hector reached towards his son. The baby wailed and wiggled back to snuggle into his well-groomed nurse's lap and dress. The child was scared by how his father looked, shocked at the terrifying horsehair plume that nodded at the top part of his helmet. His loving father and his mother laughed. Hector immediately took off his helmet and put it on the ground. It glittered brightly. Then glorious Hector kissed his darling son and took him in his arms to rock and cuddle and pray to Zeus and all the other gods. Zeus and you other gods, please let my son be just like me, admired among the Trojans, strong and successful on the battlefield and powerful enough to rule in Troy. I hope they say when he comes back from war, this man is so much better than his father. I hope he kills an enemy of ours and brings his blood-stained arms and armor back and makes his mother happy. With these words, he gave his son to his beloved wife. She let him snuggle in her perfumed dress and tearfully she smiled. Her husband noticed and pitied her. He took her by the hand and said to her, Strange woman, come on now. You must not be too sad on my account. No man can send me to the house of Hades before my time. No man can get away from destiny, first set for us at birth, however cowardly or brave he is. Go home and do the things you have to do. Work on your loom and spindle, and instruct the slaves to do their household work as well. War is a task for men, for every man born here in Troy, but most especially me. When he had finished speaking, glorious Hector picked up his helmet with its horsehair plume. His loving wife set off for home, but kept twisting and turning back to look at him. More and more tears kept flooding down her face. Quickly, she reached the rich and well-built house of Hector, killer of men, and there she found a multitude of women slaves inside. She prompted all of them to start lamenting. And so they grieved in his own house for Hector while he was still alive. They knew that he would never come back home again from war. He would not get away from fierce Greek hands. I don't think anyone has ever been able to uh, write any scene about a husband leaving a wife and child ever again <laughs> without that. Um, 
And one of the things I love about your translation is that you get your nereids, the, the sea nymphs howling for Achilles right at the beginning. Just book one out of 24, we start the lament for Achilles. Mm -hmm. And here in book six, we start the lament. Um, mm. Do you... Okay, I want to talk about your actual method. Um, so, do you find yourself... Now, we have searchable PDFs whizzing backwards and forwards, altering something in book one because you found echoes or significances in book six or book 18. Has the technology <laughs> actually, I'm serious, enabled you to, to, to make a more uh, cohesive and internally responsive whole, or did you just start at line one and shrug <laughs> on to the end? Um, I mean, I feel that I should have done much more searching early on than I did. But in you? retrospect, maybe, I mean, now that you say that, oh, that would have saved, saved something. Yeah. I, I didn't, it didn't even occur to me to do that. So no, I did, I did the chocking through, and did very you? often, at a very late stage, I would realise, wow, this scene is so much matching this yeah. scene that I need to go back and change what I did earlier. But I, di I didn't do that as part of the method. I just did it in a very haphazard, I'm just really? going to feel it all out sort of way, yes. Because to me, um, there's very strong echoes there. I mean, I, that, but I, I did that in the last... Yes, yes I mean, I, there is, because I, I realised that, and I, I hear the strong echoes in the Greek, but I, I didn't sort of do it sort of right from the start. OK, yes. yeah. so you put away all of the other translations. Yes. You sit down at your desk. Mm -hmm. You presumably got online little Scott Jones, which is... I have a big, big old heavy one, actually. Oh, you actually... I have a physical one. Well, I like having a physical one. Emily likes to work out with her dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> okay. yes. And I have my Homeric dictionary, and I have my big LSJ. You have... Well. Right. I have, yes, I have my kind of fun. But you put away all yeah. other translations. Mm -hmm. Yep. And you start with line one. Mm -hmm. yes. And then what do you do? Well, I mean, as, I, as we already discussed, that then, I, then I wait two years while I'm stuck. <laughs> <laughs> and then time passes, and I've figured out how to do it. I mean, I do a lot of um, reading out loud, a lot of reading out loud of the original, a lot of making drafts in notebooks, and then reading them out loud and seeing if it sounds right. Um, I mean, I do a lot of then rereading the Greek, reading some commentaries, sort of figuring out... Um, is this word in this, in this line, it seems to me that this is a word that I haven't come across elsewhere. Is it, if this is a hapax, then maybe I need to... A hapax legomenon is a word that only occurs once in Homer. So if it's a word that's rare within the Homeric universe, I think I need to use a rare word in, in English. Or if it's, a, if it's a word that's special, if the phrasing seems strange, then I want to echo some of that strangeness. If the line is very alliterative, I want to do something with that sound. Those kinds of things I, I think I wouldn't get unless I did enough reading out loud and also enough digging around in dictionaries to figure out, am I right that that phrase is weird? Right. And then also sort of thinking through metaphors. I mean, thinking through things like Achilles has swift feet and he's also okumoros. He also has a swift destiny or a swift end to his life. And so those kinds of things also are part of what I think about right from the start, is how can I make sure the metaphors feel alive even if they're weird. But you have a very flexible approach to formulae. And formula yeah. formulae language, that's either a formulaic ep epithet like swift-footed Achilles... Yeah or a recurring set of lines, yeah. and then they sat down and they carved everything up and they roasted it and they put it on kebabs, you know, mm. whatever. Yeah. Um, you have a very flexible approach. Sometimes you stick to the same one 
mm -hmm. very deliberately, so we know yeah. absolutely that this is this yeah. guy. And then other times you deliberately ring the changes, like rosy fingered Dawn or yeah. Dawn with her rosy fingers. Yes. So is that just intuitive as you go, or do you have a graph? <laughs> Again, I, I feel like I should have had a graph, but I did not have a graph. I right. mean, I mostly feel it, feel it out. I want the text to feel... You have, I want you to have a sense that this is formulaic poetry. I want you to have a sense of the magic of these repeated phrases, I mean, of the, of the loud resounding sea or of the winged words. Those are magical, and it's wonderful. But I also want... I don't want the literate reader to feel bored by me doing it in too rote of a way. And especially with things like the winged words, where I also have to fit in whatever the, the, whatever the beginning of the speech is, I felt I can play around with, well, are, is it that the words fly out, or is it that the words are winged? And I can do variations on that, and that also sort of helps me with, is the speech going to begin midline, and that might be metrically helpful, and it might also be rhetorically helpful in terms of the line breaks. Um, with some of them, I want—I mean, I want to have some elements of completely rigid um, repetition because give that, me, that does which give you a ones? sense give of me the example. So I have Master of the Warcry many, yeah. many, many times. The publishers went a little crazy about whether or not Warcry should be hyphenated. Which oh. I mean, all these sort of things. Oh. I mean, I hadn't really thought, thought through because I was mostly just thinking, I think it sounds, it sounds good, so yeah. I'm going to go with that. Um, but of course, one and, also has to think about how to look on the page. Master, master strategist. Master and I think that's one of yes. the few deliberate intertextuals with your Odyssey, is that right? Um, I'd use strategist in, in the yeah. Odyssey as well, yes. Yeah. I mean, I was less rigid with the, with the epithets in the Odyssey because I just couldn't afford to be with the line with the line yeah. for line thing, and I just had to use short words whenever I possibly could <laughs> to make the math I'd like out. to talk briefly, because it's come up a, lo a lot in, in reviews, apart from anything else, and also in terms of actually performance and, and, and radio and, 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 and listening into um, the um, audio book and so on is characterization. Mm -hmm. um, you've, you've said yourself that when you've done readings, you actually enjoy hamming up mm -hmm. yeah. Achilles or yes. Agamemnon, uh -huh. or, yes. you know, uh -huh. I'm the kingliest or, yes. or, or yes. whatever. But um, without introducing any kind of bum note, because I absolutely <laughs> love it, yeah. um, some reviewers think that you go too far in differentiating mm -hmm. your speakers. Yeah. Um, I don't. Can I, yeah. uh, and I have to say, what, yeah. to me, the very funniest long scene in, in, in the Iliad, and sort of the first things when I got the book, I checked to see what she'd done with it. <laughs> okay, so in book 14, Hera needs to seduce Zeus to get him not looking at the battlefield for a while. She spends about 300 lines having a bath, putting on a makeup, choosing her best clothes, going to Aphrodite to borrow the girdle of desire, <laughs> all that sort of thing. Aphrodite, yes. And then she sort of flits up to Mount Ida and says, well, I haven't got time really to talk to you. Well, excuse me. I'm just off to see the Ethiopians. And then Zeus, who gathers the clouds together, answered, he's so tactless. <laughs> You can go later on that journey here. Let us now enjoy some time in bed. Let us make love. Such strong desire has never suffused my senses or subsumed my heart for any goddess or any woman as I feel now for you. Not even when I lusted for the wife of Ixion and got her pregnant with Perithuus. <laughs> I love this. As counsellor, as wise as any god. Not even when I wanted to deny the daughter of Acrisius, a woman with pretty young, I got her pregnant. Yeah. Um, Etc. And I just love this. I got her pregnant. <laughs> Um, yeah. Because one of the worst 
aspects of Homeric translation usually is words used for sexual activity mm-hmm. and begetting. Yeah. It all gets very King James. Yeah. So how did you have the courage to do got her pregnant? Well, <laughs> I wasn't tempted by begetting. I mean, he just didn't <laughs> seem like it. It didn't occur to me that that's what a. I mean, he's, he thinks he's talking in a really seductive he way. He does. Right? So I think it has. Uh, begetting sounds less seductive than look at how masculine I am. I managed to seduce all these, uh, uh, seduce slash rape all these other women. So surely you will therefore um, <laughs> want, want to have sex with me too. I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right that it's hilarious, and it's also it's hilarious. It's, it's hilarity relies on the speaker not seeing that he's, you know, completely oblivious to her strategies. He thinks he's got the strategy and he's got all the moves. And, and the pomposity of Zeus has to come through, but in a way that you can imagine him not understanding how pompous he's being. So it, it has to be, like, not overdone so much that it's... Um, that even the most mansplaining of strategist gods would, wouldn't see it. Well, I have um, to say... I would give you the Stephen Spender Prize for Literary Translation on the strength of that speech alone. I, I, just, I just love it. How about some of the other characters? I mean, what I also like was it... I mean, what has been wrong with previous translators not to hear how differentiated they are through the formulae? So Agamemnon's endlessly says, don't. Mm-hmm. Yep. Don't do that. No. You know... Yeah. What, what do you feel has been obscuring that? Some sort of sense that it's very primitive poetry and just formulaic? I think, that, I, mean, I think that a lot of the sort of sense of back in the day, primitive literature, it's all sort of one note. And of course, the history yeah. of, I mean, the last two decades of Homeric scholarship have all been about how wrong that is. Yeah. And they've all been about the flexibility of oral narrative and all, I mean, Richard Martin's Language of Heroes, all this sort of teasing out of the different points of view. I mean, I mean de, de Jong's narratological readings of the Iliad, different points of view and how it, within the course of one line you can be shifting perspective and now you're seeing through Andromache's perspective or now we're hearing how Menelaus talks differently from the way his brother talks. Yes. I mean, I, I feel as I've learned a lot just from reading uh, scholars on the, on the Odyssey and the Iliad who've really pointed to things which don't show up in the, in the translations. And so I think just the, the fact that that's sort of clear to me about the Greek means that I, I wanted to make it clear in the English, that right. it really is deeply sort of psychologically attuned, not just to sort of undifferentiated human slash divine nature, but to these very subtle differences in how completely different Poseidon is from Zeus or how completely different... Um, you know, Hector is from Diomedes. I mean, all these different ways that the, some of these characters might seem as if, here's another male warrior, here's another male warrior. You might think they would all seem exactly the same. They absolutely don't. No. You can, would never for a minute think that's Menelaus talking when it's actually Agamemnon. Yeah. And, you, and I think you, it's both that they're so deeply characterized, but also you're able to have sympathy with them. I mean, I, I, it took me quite a long time to have as much sympathy as I do nowadays for even Agamemnon. You know, I think I, I, no. I, I do. I, you know, since many years of chairing programs, I sort of feel like it's quite difficult to be a leader, and everyone's always going to blame you. And I, I get why he's always blaming it on someone else because that's the easy you, way out. You don't no. use you don't I'm, use three <laughs> negative imperatives in your first speech in a poem. Sorry. Maybe he didn't know that the poet was recording it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I do think, um, given these 50 or more English translations since 1715, um, that this is, to me, the most exciting thing about this. I absolutely love it, and and, and it's going to make it um, 
something that people are going to be able to uh, read out. Um, I want also to talk a bit about building up tragedy. Um, but before we talk about how we gradually rise up to the uh, crescendos, I'd, I'd really like to think, uh, ask you about nature. Um, this is just very personal. I, I've tried to write a book. I'm very shocked by the number of sort of trees chopped down mm-hmm. in the Iliad. They go yep. out for nine days mm. and denude Mount Ida yep. for the funerals. And I know you're deeply into environmental issues. Uh, and mm-hmm. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. you're a vegetarian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I've been a vegetarian for many years. Yes, since how do you cope with all those hecatombs of cattle being slaughtered mm-hmm. and, and, and so on? Mm-hmm. I mean, has that affected your translation? I mean, I've, it's affected my translation in that I very much wanted to make clear, as I th- as, when I read the Greek, I'm very, one of the things I love most about it is the sense of the world being fully alive and that I don't think it's a narrative where you sort of think of the, the earth as something dead. I think it's a narrative where you know, even the spears have their own agency. Objects have their own sort of life and yeah. energy. Um, and then also I love all the horse characters. I mean, I love poor, <laughs> the poor mortal trace horse who's harnessed to the immortal horses of Achilles. And I you have translate... The, I have the immor- immortal horses of Achilles oh. on my arm, you know, because the mortal Explain one is me. Explain how you actually that's... translate their names because usually we just get Xanthus and Balius yes. and stuff. Explain yes. why you decided to translate their names. Into because I mean, I think it. I mean, I don't want to say humanize because they're horses, so it equidizes give, give them. Give some examples. So, it, um, so I have. There was there was one of you actually that sort of teased me for. That said everything about this translation is great except for the one line in which she translates the names of Hector's horses, and and Hector is and Hector, unlike most warriors, has a four-horse chariot, and I. Th- I'm going to me- get mess up what I do. Come now, Brightfoot, Dapple, and Godlike Sparkle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I just I think it's okay to have some elements of almost cute because we know how dangerous these war- the life is of these for these warrior horses. And there were so many lines where there's a sort of thinking through what is it like on the battlefield for the horses. What is it like? Many of these horses are killed, or they're terrified on the battlefield, and in a way, I think the horses sort of stand in for the, the common la'oi, the troops, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, whose voices we really don't hear, because mostly we're hearing the voices of the leaders, but we have the, the ones who are forced into battle and who don't have the kind of motivation that Hector has. Hector has a sense of, he has to go because of his status, he has to go for fear of shame, but we're also told by the great tactician Nestor that you have to shove the common people into the middle and force them out, because they're not going to want to go, because they will all be killed. And in a way, it's the same for the horses. And we have these yeah. sort of named horses. And so just the sense that the horses are not people, but they matter, and they have an agency, and they have a sense of purpose, and their deaths are deaths we can grieve. Exactly. And we really can weep for the horses, as yeah. well as for the trees. I, I, I love it. And funnily enough, we actually have in Mycenaean Bronze Age Greek the mm-hmm. name of two cattle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of yeah. them is Twinkletoes. <laughs> yeah. There is a bull who drew a plough mm-hmm. on Crete in the 15th century BC, who we know was called Twinkletoes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they had a sense of humour. They mm-hmm. had a sense of humour. So, on to tragedy, before we hear the actors. Um, so, we've just talked about what you call the afternoon nap, rather mm-hmm. euphemistically. <laughs> um, I might call this an afternoon, you know, godly shag or something. Mm-hmm. But after book 14... Mm-hmm. We hit the big time mm-hmm. on, on, on the tragedy. Um, 
did you feel, did you have to take a few weeks off before you started? Because we have in succession the death of Patroclus, um, the battle in the river, and the death of Hector, mm -hmm. and then the two funerals. Did you feel you had, at the end of sort of book 15, to take a breather? Did you know, oh, God, Patroclus' death is coming up? I mean, I did know that, yes. I don't <laughs> want to spoil anything for anyone else who doesn't know that. Um, but I, I do find that it is... Um, I mean, I, I, by that time, I felt I had got, got a handle on how to do this. And I love those books so much, and it's so intense, and you absolutely sort of want to keep going, that I didn't... I, I, I was sort of working as many hours as I possibly Were could you? at that stage, and I wanted to sort of keep... Um, going did, and going and going. Really? Yes. Yeah. So you actually can notice your working hours accelerating or, or uh, not accelerating? It, it, it became easier, I mean, both as, it, as I went on with the amount of time I'd been doing it. This is ran, was ran, a lot of it. Round three yes. children. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it, would also, but it was both that I'd been doing it longer, and so I felt that I, I sort of had the voices and the, and the style more clearly in my, in my, in my ear, but that also um, those books are so intense that you sort of... I, I felt I was always in that world, even when I was making breakfast, that I was always sort of on tenterhooks for maybe Patroclus will live this time. Uh, and did you... I mean, I don't think many people would... you know. It's not be honest to say that they had not sometimes wanted to skip some of the fighting mm -hmm. to get to the emotive bits. The fighting you... is emotive. I love the fighting. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You... It's very emotive. I mean, but it's, you it's have emotive. said yes. you had problems with the lack of words in English for spear. I do have problems with that. I really wrestle with spear and shield. I mean, just the. <laughs> The paucity of, of weapon language, and the weapon language that we do have, so much of it is anachronistic, and so much of the, you know, I can't say fire, because it's going to sound like it's guns, and I mean, all yeah. these just different things about um, throwing, hurling missiles, and the missiles also sounds as if it's something which in, involves gunpowder or bombs, and of course, none of that is... Is appropriate. Nor is um, projectile. A projectile won't work, no, because you can, and anyone who's been spat up on yeah. knows we don't want to have projectile vomiting. So yes. you actually got, yeah. you began to get frustrated in those scenes because you can hear the richness of the vocabulary in the Greek with the limitations of the English language. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, that was, a, that was part of why I love translation is so, much, is so much, is that fascination of sort of wrestling with, I want to create these effects, and yet I only have one word for spear, right. and how am I going to do that? I just have to find some other way to make it not feel repetitive in a way the original isn't. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, of course, I would have to sort of repeat a character's name, because there were so many sequences where yeah. you know, 12 people get killed in very short succession, and they're all he's, so I can't use other pronouns to make it clear. So I might have to put in more names to make clear who's spearing whom, and then who's spearing someone else, when which year is getting speared and which liver, you know. So, uh, we're going to have uh, a reading from, you, from your translation of, of the death of Patroclus in a minute. Could, could, could you just set the scene for exactly why this is so agonising? You know, whose armour is he wearing? Why is he out there? And why does it matter so much to the Greeks? Yes, so, so the poem begins by announcing its subject as the menace of Achilles, the overwhelming wrath of Achilles, which we heard about a little bit in the argument scene that you first heard um, between Achilles and Agamemnon, where Agamemnon takes away the enslaved woman from Achilles, whom he calls his trophy, his geras. Um, and Achilles 
has been disrespected in public and is furious about it. He's, he's as Edith said, he's the best at his job if the job is um, spear warriorship and running very fast on the battlefield. He's extremely good at that. And yet he's been disrespected by Agamemnon, who, as he also complains in that great scene, is no good at fighting and just is very good at gathering wealth and resources together for himself, which is a different kind of skill. It's more of a sort of Jeff Bezos kind of skill. Um, and so there's this great quarrel in which, and then after that, Achilles refuses to fight. So the, one of the many paradoxes of the Iliad is that it's, it's the Trojan War, but doesn't have the Trojan horse. It tells almost none of the Trojan War myths. Um, there's a tiny segment that it does tell. It takes place over a month and a half, neither the beginning nor the end of the war. And, and the greatest warrior is not, is not warrioring for most of it. Um, the action hero is, is in, a, in action, and Achilles' main talent is beach. Um, but the, uh, the, the, but he, he, in the course of all that, um, Hector, the great Trojan warrior that we just heard from, um, does leave his wife Andromache, insists on going out. We sort of know already from that scene that he's going to die, but Hector doesn't know it. And as we sort of heard from that scene also, he's in this heartbreakingly ambiguous um, cognitive position of sort of thinking maybe Zeus is on his side. And Zeus sort of thinks that too. Yeah. Um, and yet, it's still not going to happen. He's still not going to live. But Hector's doing very, very, very well. Hector reaches the quasi-besieged city, which is the Greek encampment, bursts through the wall, again with a stone the size of my book and hurls <laughs> it through the wall um, and gets to, the, gets to the Greek ships. And at that stage, the Greeks are, of course, terrified and think, we are going to have all our ships burned. We, won't, we not only won't take Troy, won't get any loot, we also will never get home and we'll all be slaughtered. So it's a disastrous situation. Yeah. And Patroclus does not want that to happen, so he begs his dearest friend, Achilles, to please, please, please stop this sulking in the tent, or if not, then at least let him go out wearing Achilles' anger. And that will terrify the Trojans, because they'll think Achilles has finally come back to battle. They'll retreat, and Hector will, and Hector will at least retreat from the ships back to the city. Achilles tells Patroclus, once you've driven Hector off, Turn around, come right back. Do not go out too far, don't push on into the city. Come right back, you'll be safe, it'll be fine. Because you're not that great a fighter. He's, he's good, though. Yeah. He's good. He kills a whole bunch of people. And he's very cruel about it. He mocks them as they die. Okay. And I, which I think we sometimes forget about Patroclus. That he's, all right, all right, you know, all right. He's, Sorry. But he's very good. <laughs> they, they, I mean, they, they share a great talent for massacre. He's never going to beat Hector. He's never going to beat Hector, which, which he ought to know. But like, like Hector, I mean... Delusion comes and, and yeah. sent from Zeus and takes away men's wits. Yes. So. While Helios bestrode the middle sky, weapons struck both sides and the troops were dying. But when the sun god turned, about the time that plowmen free their oxen from the harness, the Greeks were stronger than their fate decreed. They dragged the warrior, Sobrianes, out of the range of weapons and away from Trojan shouting and stripped off his armor. And then Patroclus rushed against the Trojans with murder in his heart. Like rushing Ares, three times he leapt at them with dreadful cries, and every time he swooped, he killed nine men. But on your fourth attempt, godlike Patroclus, 
your life was finished. In the cutthroat combat amid the chaos of the battlefield, Phoebus Apollo came to meet Patroclus. The human failed to see the eerie god cloaked in thick mist. Apollo stood behind Patroclus, and with one flat palm, he patted his back and sturdy shoulders, so his eyes swiveled. Apollo nudged his helmet off. It clattered underneath the horse's hooves. The crest of horsehair sprouting from its tip was soiled with blood and dust. Before this moment, it was against the norms of proper custom for any dust to smirch that horse-plumed helmet when it protected the fine head and temples of godlike Achilles. But now, Zeus let Hector wear this helmet on his head, which brought his own destruction closer to him. The big, long, thick and sturdy spear Patroclus held in his hands was shattered all to pieces. His fine fringed shield and sword belt slipped and fell. Apollo, son of Zeus, unclipped his breastplate. Confusion seized his mind. His splendid body undone, he stood stock still in bafflement. And then a sharp spear struck him from behind between the shoulders. A Dardanian, Euphorbus, son of Panthous, had hurled it from very close at hand. He was the best of all the men his age at throwing spears and horsemanship and sprinting on quick feet. That very day, Euphorbus had arrived at Troy behind his horses and first learned the ways of war. He had already pushed 20 men off their chariots. He hit you, horse lord Patroclus, but he did not kill you. He tugged the ash spear from your flesh, then ran back to the crowd. Although Patroclus was disarmed, Euphorbus would not wait to fight him in deadly combat, and he fled. Patroclus, struck by the god and wounded by the spear, drew back into the huddle with his comrades to save his life and shun his fate. But Hector saw brave Patroclus wounded and retreating. He muscled through the crowd, got near Patroclus, and speared him underneath his ribs and drove the bronze point through his body. With a thud, he fell. The army of the Greeks lamented, just as a lion bests a tireless boar when on the mountainside they fight together, both spirited, majestic warriors, because both want to drink from a small stream. The boar pants hard, defeated by the lion. So Hector, son of Priam, standing close, stabbed with his spear and took away the life of brave Patroclus, who had killed so many. Then Hector boasted, and his words took wing. Patroclus, I suppose you thought you would destroy my city and enslave the women of Troy and rob them of their day of freedom and take them in your ships to your own homeland. Fool! Hector's horses galloped to protect them. Their hooves were eager for the battlefield. I am the finest of the valiant fighters of Troy and I defend the Trojan women from slavery the day they lose their freedom. But as for you, vultures will eat you up. You are a weakling, and your great Achilles did you no good at all. He stayed behind. I bet he told you when you left for battle, Patroclus, 
Do not drive your chariot back here to the hollow ships until you slice right through the bloody tunic to the chest of murderous Hector. So he spoke, I think, and you, poor fool, attempted to obey him. Though little strength remained to you, Patroclus, you answered, Hector, you make big boasts now. Zeus, son of Cronus, and Apollo gave, me, gave you victory, and with ease the gods have crushed me. They took the arms and armor from my body. If 20 men like you had challenged me, all of them would have died beneath my spear. But cruel destiny and Leto's son Apollo killed me, and my human killer, Euphorbus, you were third to slaughter me. If I tell you this, take it to heart. You surely have not long to live. Your death and overwhelming fate stand near you now. The hands of great Achilles will defeat you. His death wrapped round him as he spoke. His spirit flew from his limbs to Hades, and she mourned his fate and left his manhood and his youth. Great Hector spoke to him, though he was dead. Patroclus, why do you foretell for me a bitter end? Who knows if great Achilles, the son of Thetis with the braided hair, may fall beneath my spear and lose his life. With this, he set his foot onto the corpse and tugged his spear of bronze out of the wound and shoved him down again onto his back. Thank you all so much, Juliet Stevenson, Tobias Menzies, Edith Hall, Emily Wilson. That was, that was really wonderful. Um, and now it's time, we have about 15 minutes, I'm told, for questions from you. There are roving microphones, so please wait for the microphone and do a better job than I'm doing of speaking into the top of it so that we can, we can hear what you're saying. Um, and yes, so hands, hands up for who, who'd like to ask. Um, I was just wondering how you approach the similes in the text. Um, do you approach them in quite a formulaic way? Do you approach them in a different way to the rest of the text? And do you try to make them, us feel comfortable with them or try to make them feel quite distant and foreign? Um, I mean, I think with all of it, I want it to feel as vivid uh, and visceral as possible. And as if it's a visual simile or if it's a noisy simile, I want you to feel it. I want you to feel, what does it feel like to be that lion or that boar who's so thirsty for a tiny bit of water and to sort of feel that that's what, it, what it's like to be a human, but also it matters what it's like to be a lion. Um, I... I mean, I, I love the similes, and I, I do want there to be a sort of sense when, every time you get to a simile that something shifts in the world, that you're looking from a completely different angle. But of course, each of them shifts the world in a different way. I mean, sometimes it's um, the warriors are very noisy on the battlefield, and then the simile takes you to a silent world of snowflakes. Or sometimes you're in a world of human conflict, and then it turns out that you're in a world of... People are stretching leather, or the, the details are so important. But I think the details are important throughout, in order to make it clear that this is a poem which sort of has this 
synesthetic experience. We are always experiencing um, the text or the sound of the text through multiple different senses. That it should have a tactile quality, a sonic quality, um, like all these different elements should be there, not just the visual. I'm not sure if that fully answers it, but just that I, I, sort of, I love the similes and I want to feel they're alive. I know that um, the Stanley Lombardo translation puts them in italics to sort of mark them off as different. And I, d I didn't feel that I need to do that. I think the reader can get or the listener can get that something changes every time there's an as. And you can hear that something's changing. And I, I hope you can hear that. Yeah. You like an end dash, though. Oh, I dash, yes, I do dash, yes, I definitely dash. In fact, like that, I, I, as with Warcry, there was a lot of debate about can I get away with this many dashes, and yeah, I, I do do dashes, and, and it, sometimes it's sort of difficult because, as, as you probably all know, even if you haven't read much Homer, Homeric similes can go on a very long time, and so if it's, a, if it's more than one sentence within, a, within an M dash, does that still work? I think it does. I think you can still sort of feel that within the dashes, there's this little miniature world that's being created, or little vignette of a particular, um, not quite short story, but you're taken to a different world, and you see it very vi vividly, and then you're back in the battlefield, or back wherever you were. Um, I was wondering, how did you go about tackling the catalogue of ships? Because that is kind of universally the one part of the Iliad that everyone is just like, don't read. <laughs> you know, I mean, um, yes. and I, I know in the other version of the Iliad I've read, which I believe is the uh, Robert Fagel's translation, mm -hmm. which is sort of written in, um, like, structured like verse, but it's really prose, but, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I read the catalogue of ships in that, and it was completely unbearable. Mm -hmm. um, and I've started reading the catalogue of ships in your translation, and it flows just so much better. So um, I was wondering how exactly you kind of went about tackling probably like the uh, biggest hurdle for any translator in uh, doing an epic. Yeah, um, I mean, so the catalogue of ships proved to me um, once and for all that I had to have more lines, because if you have that many names, um, I, I needed more lines to make the names work. Um, it seems to me that the catalogue of ships only works if you use meter, and only works if you invite reading out loud, and the, the reading out loud has a sort of instant payoff in terms of rhythm, and that the rhythm is ideally going to carry you forward. I personally love the catalogue of ships. I think it's extremely moving. And um, if you sort of constantly think, here are the names of the dead. It's both the names of all these people from all over the Greek-speaking world gathered in one place for a common mission to obliterate another people. And so there's something both horrifying and also all these people are, have come here to die. And if you sort of come into it with that sense and also with a sense that there's an ASMR quality to rhythmical names and also a sense of, you know, we've all been to Memorial Day or Veterans Day or, um, you know, we, we we wear our red poppies and sort of remember the names of the dead. Um, there's a way that the na these names, which are mythological and, you know, presumably these are the names of the dead who didn't, never actually lived, but we pretend they lived and we pretend they died because they give us a sort of language for, or music for lots. I think it's more music even than anything else. And it's a linguistic music. So in a way, the, the catalogue, I could be closer to the Greek than any other moment because I just have those same names but in anglicised forms. And I also just love the way that the catalogue is full of teeny tiny details of this is what this place is like that this person will never see again. And this is what, th this, is what this person brought to Troy that will all be destroyed. And here's the, another name of a parent who will never see his son again. And just those little tiny details, are, I mean, we just heard the very extensive 
this is how someone who hoped to live dies, and you get that over and over again at, di at different speeds, but the catalog gives it to you, here's more and more and more, but that story happens over and over. I love it. I hope other people love it too. I thank you everyone for the wonderful talk and, and for the actors for amazing performances. So in the introduction, you write that uh, when you spoke to war veterans, they said that for, for many of them, the ELED actually is more, is closer to actual warfare than many other popular renditions right now. So I was wondering if you could give us some more details about that. Yes. So. Um, in the various veterans groups that I've talked to, um, a theme that's come up, I mean, a couple of themes have come up a lot. One is just about the um, burying the dead and encountering death and dead bodies that you, are, you yourself, as, a, as a, just a person in combat, might have to be in charge of disposing of a dead comrade or a dead enemy. Here are a group of people that we've killed and now we have to bury them. How are we going to do that? And nothing in civilian life or in um, most of literature that anyone has sort of normally read um, post-antiquity really teaches you sort of how to feel about confronting a dead body. And so that, I think the theme of um, death, which runs all the way through the Iliad, and just the sort of both practical and, and emotional issues of how do we deal with the dead? How do we honor the dead? How do we recognize that the dead are people too? Um, so that, I think, is something which, I, I mean, I, I mean, my experience with conversations with veterans sort of really resonates in the, the way that the Iliad sort of tells you stories for how difficult that is and how that's always been part of warfare, is that a product of war is dead bodies. Um, it's not just a, war, war generates in the Iliad both glory and also dead bodies. Um, can, can, I, can I just add a, yeah. a, a tiny thing? That, that There's a, a famous book by a, a, an American psychiatrist called Jonathan yeah. Shea yeah. called Achilles in Vietnam. Um, and I think he may take it too far, but he, he thinks that Achilles' psychopathology is very similar to that that suffered by... Yeah. post-traumatic stress disorder. And two things in particular, and this really helped me understand the Iliad, actually. Mm -hmm. This really did. One is um, that the, the worst possible thing to happen to you in, if you're in combat, and the one that makes you most likely to have PTSD, is to lose all faith in what the mission of what you're yep. doing. Mm -hmm. Right? Yep. So Achilles actually says... I really don't see why I'm here, it's somebody mm -hmm. else's wife, and to lose any faith in your commander having your best mm -hmm. interests at heart. Yes. Th those yes. two those things, two the things alienation of Achilles, mm -hmm. yep. um, it's really helped me go back yes. in. And he also writes very movingly because Homer avoids explicitly making Achilles and Patroclus gay. Mm -hmm. I have gay friends who get very angry when I say that, but he goes out of his way to say that they're He's sleeping with women it, so it, on the other it, side. Yeah. But Jonathan Shea's uh, intensive psychotherapy with mm. these individuals, yeah. they, they, they develop relationships where they call each other mummy and daddy mm. yep. uh, and yes. buddy and, and, mm. and those similes about the little girl. And yep. Yep. So that, that yeah. book, I think, might 
Yes. Would be a very good thing. It's from the 1990s, but... Yeah, there's a pair of books. There's Odysseus in Vietnam as well. So yeah. in both cases, sort of, sort of psychoanalyzing psycho the Homeric warriors. And, and I think they are useful. But I mean, I, I, don't, I'm not I, sure, yeah. I wouldn't go all the way in terms of... I wouldn't either. Of, ...readings of Homer, but I do think they're useful But the too. alienation... Yeah. Yeah. And we've all had bosses who we despise, have yeah. we not? Yes. I mean, it doesn't even have to be military. Yes. Having to take orders from somebody who exploits the fruits of our labour and we despise... Yes. It's the Iliad. Yes. Yeah. I, mean, I find that veterans, more than, even, more than just regular students, are very shocked by the behaviour yeah. of, the, of the leaders in exactly. the Iliad. Because they, they don't take care of their men. And that you know, is the universal... Achilles just sits out and... Yeah. He's not kept taking care of anyone. He's letting a lot of people die under his command. Which, I mean, you might think, oh, maybe he's just being glorious and letting lots yeah. of people die, and that's fine. But if you talk to a veteran, they maybe don't exactly. like that very much. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, on the balcony. Thanks. Um, this is more to do with the physical copy of your book than perhaps your translation. But your book is unique in the fact that you have not one nor two, but five maps. <laughs> I was wondering how much of an input you had into them, but also if you did have an input, um, how useful you felt they were for readers to feel like grounded in the story. Um, having kind of studied classics at uni, it was a really interesting perk for me for your translation because it felt like I could reference back to it. I could see the distance that people had yes. travelled in order to, um, you know, to reach these battles and also where they acquired their trophies from. So I was, yeah, just yes. to ask you about maps. Thank you for asking that. Yes, so um, Adam Kitzinger did the maps both for my Odyssey and for my Iliad. I think he's wonderful. I'm so grateful that, um, that Norton was willing to, to pay him to do that wonderful, very, very detailed um, cartographic work. Um, I did a lot of sort of back and forth about what, what exactly should be on each map, and especially about the last two, I think, I'm not sure which order they're in, but the, the map of Journeys to Troy, which I think is extremely useful for sort of visualizing where have each of the Greek leaders come from, and also where have the various um, women who've come from other places come from. Um, and then also the map of the Troad. I think it's very useful to have some version of that in your mind as you go through the poem. Um, so I, I was delighted that we had it, even though, of course, the map of um, Troy, as described in the Iliad, we also had a lot of back and forth about where exactly is the fig tree? There, is, there never was a fig tree, so an archaeologist can't tell you, and we just have to you know, put it somewhere that might make sense with the poetic narrative. But, and I also had, I have a colleague at Penn who excavated at Troy for... 30 years, and I sort of asked him about the sort of archaeological design of the map, and we sort of check, double-checked with, you know, does this fit, or is it possible? And again, I mean, with the final map, there's not really a fact-checking thing you can do, because some of those, some of those things, like the, the lovely washing pools where the women of Troy in peacetime used to do their laundry, it's a poetic artifact rather than an archaeological thing, but it... You know, some of those things come on the maps anyway, because that's part of what the Iliad's landscape is, is that it, it maps it for the mind. Hi. Uh, I would love to hear anything that you would love to say about um, the end of Book 18, uh, The Shield of Achilles. Mm -hmm. you know, we heard this story of when Patroclus lose, he, loses, he wears Achilles' armor, and I'd love to hear about when Hephaestus builds the new shield for mm -hmm. Achilles, mm -hmm. especially after hearing that you said that you felt so connected to the gods in the Iliad mm -hmm. when you first read them, mm -hmm. and we kind of hear the backstory of Hephaestus and Thetis at the end of mm -hmm. book 18, mm -hmm. and then we get kind of an ekphrasis, a description of a piece of art mm -hmm. that tells this 
tangent, a total mm -hmm. different story from the rest of the narrative, mm -hmm. which again you spoke about when you were talking about those similes that take us away from the rest of the poem. And so if there's anything you could tell us about the end of book 18, Love to hear it. I love Book 18. I mean, I love the whole narrative of Book 18, like from the magical emergence of the sea goddesses at the beginning to the um, also magical workshop of Hephaestus in the final sequence of the Shield of the, the long final sequence, the Shield of Achilles. Um, I mean, I did a lot of sort of wrestling with how do I describe Hephaestus's body in language that isn't more ableist than the Greek. I mean, that was something that I sort of really thought about a lot because I don't think the Greek is sort of presenting him as let's mock him for the particular ways his body is. He's a highly skilled divine being who's just as powerful as any other Olympian, but he's, of course, also, like many of the Olympians, got a very diff difficult family life. And we learn about that a little bit from Book 18, where we learn about the, his adoptive... Um, the goddesses who adopted him, and he therefore made them great accessories as a thank you present. I, mean, I, love, I love all of that, and I love also just the detail of the shield of Achilles, where it's both a poetic and visual artifact that you, I think, ideally ought to be able to sort of visualize, but of course, no real shield could possibly be this way, because everything on it is not just forged of amazing gold and silver and enamel and tin, um, but also always seems to be moving. And so it seems to be sort of this pushing of what can you do in poetry that you can't do in visual static art. Um, I mean, as with the similes, I felt the main thing is to be as, as vivid as possible and to make sure that the reader really feels both that you can see everything in your mind's eye and it feels... Um, fully alive and moving, even if it's supposed to be made of metal. And that surprise should be there, too, that it's, this is a cornfield, these are dancers, and they are actually dancing, and yet they're also just, just embossed on a shield. Um, and that we should sort of constantly have that sense of just how beautiful it all is, and also how it's both so different from the, the quote-unquote real world of the battlefield, because we get to see what is a city at peace like, and we see at the same time, even a city at peace has strife and arguments. And even as, and the city at war on the shield is quite different from the city at war within the Iliad. So as with the similes, it both takes you to a different world, and it's also a world that turns out to be more like that world, or tells you something about what the world of the Iliad is, or the, world, the, the primary world might be as well. Um, I don't know, I feel like I'm not fully answering what, how did I translate it, but I love that passage so much. Yeah, thank you. And I just also, just the final thing just about Hephaestus as a character. I mean, I love also the way that we have both that side of Hephaestus in his workshop as the god of tech, the god who can design everything and forge everything. But then we also, in the, the, the sequence with the river, where Achilles try, goes too far in his fighting and clogs up the river with corpses, and then the river floods and almost destroys Achilles, and Hephaestus comes to the battlefield, and, it, and then amazing sort of theomachy. Hera sending him. Hera tells him. I said he had, had issues with his family because, of course, he has a terrible relationship with his poor, abused, and also always angry mother um, who sends her fire god son to It, it to is really interesting. The, the, yes. the, the word uh, for his lameness yeah. is, is K-U-Lambda-Lambda-Kul. Uh, it is in Hippocrates... And the medical yeah. tech very specifically describing congenital club foot, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, but, but bilaterally, yeah, which is quite rare. Much more. I mean, I'd actually did this research <laughs> oh, yeah. yes. in boys, and it's exactly what you would set a little boy 
born like that, you would absolutely, mm. if he was strong, upper-bodied, yeah. set him to be your village blacksmith. Right, right. Ab absolutely. The, the hammering. That's yeah. exactly mm. what you yeah. would do. And in the archaic vases, he's, he's, he, he, mm. he is shown mm. literally... With the muscles up top, yeah. yes. Mm. Yeah. With, with club foot. Yeah. So it's actually... There is a historic history of medicine thing in mm -hmm. there uh, yeah. as well. And he has managed, by great training and great application... Uh, to get a very considerable status and power amongst the gods, despite being, mm -hmm. um, according to Bronze Age ethics about physical beauty and male mm -hmm. strength, a complete disaster. Mm -hmm. and, and that's very moving mm -hmm. and yeah, a very powerful agree. story yeah. um, in, in, in terms of, of, of disabled readers. Yes, yeah, I totally agree. I'm at the front here, and I think this will probably have to be the last question. So. Um, so you mentioned not looking at other translations and just the Greek. Were there any moments just reading the Greek where you realised that you'd been taking something completely for granted about the Iliad that just wasn't really in there? Hmm. Completely for granted. Hmm. I feel like I should have a good story for that. Oh, if it's the last question, I'm going to blow it. Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, I don't know that I do have a good story for that. Can you come up with one so that can save me from this one? Hmm. Something that I you've taken for granted. What have I taken for granted? I mean, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to reconstruct oh, what... Yes. One scepter or two? There are two scepters. Two scepters, yes. D there is the scepter yes. of Agamemnon. There's the scepter of Agamemnon and the scepter of Achilles. Yes. yes. And they're not the same, are they're they? They're not the same, no. But, but I think every I'm... previous translator has assumed they were. Really? Yeah. And it's always really... Oh. Not... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> And I, it's always really annoyed me. Yeah. No, I we did not your intro. Yes. Lo and behold, separate scepter. As with your intro, I, I, I mean, it's so clear that they're different models of power. Okay, thank you. And, and sorry, on, on that bombshell, the <laughs> 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 we, um, again, thank you all so much, and thank you everyone for coming. Uh, books, I believe, signed copies of a sale. <laughs> Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.